Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our risen and living Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our text this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 12 to 19, but we're going to take it in pieces, so we'll begin just with verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. 1903. You remember what happened in 1903? At Kitty Hawk, it's considered to be the first successful powered flight by the Wright brothers. Wilbur Wright died about nine years later in 1912, but Orville lived another 45 years and died in 1948. You might remember that World War II ended in 1945. Think of the vast difference between that first plane that Orville and Wilbur flew and those giant bombers that Orville might have seen for himself flying in World War II. One has to wonder what, or, uh, what Orville was doing for all those years. You kind of hear about him there back in the early 1900s, but we really, really don't hear much about him after that. Well, at least according to one historian, he spent most of those years fighting legal battles in court, trying to maintain control of his and his brother's patents, on trying to force his companies that were using their invention to, to pay what they were supposed to, to pay them. Here, Orville and, and, or, sorry, Orville and Wilbur invented something amazing, something miraculous, a gift to the world. And the result was that men, many men, lots of different men, tried to take control of it, didn't they? They tried to control it for themselves. They tried to make profit off of it. Did you know that the Wright Flyer, that first original plane they built, was, was not even put in the Smithsonian until uh, 1948? And one of the reasons for it was because the curator of the Smithsonian Institute had been attempting to invent his own plane and didn't want to acknowledge that the Wright brothers beat him to it. Anytime something miraculous is invented, we can see the same thing happens. Lots of people who are trying to take credit for it themselves, trying to take control of it, trying to make money off of it. And that's what Jesus is, is talking about in our text. He tells us that from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of the heavens suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. John came preaching repentance and baptism in the wilderness, opening the doors of heaven to anyone who wanted to go in. And the reaction for many people, Jesus said, was to try and take control of it, to try and profit off of it, to try and take it by force. The New King James here has uh, the, violent, <clears throat> the violent take it by force, but a better translation would be the violent try or attempt to take it by force. You see, you remember how Jesus had to drive the money changers out of the temple. And there you, you see men attempting to profit off of God's word and off of God's grace. And in the same way, Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 13, You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, 
nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And again, a couple verses later, you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Violent men, God comes in the person of John the Baptist and end of Jesus Christ proclaiming the grace of God and violent men attempt to take control of it. Not much has changed really in 2,000 years as if this was happening at the time of Luther. There were many powerful men who wanted to control God's kingdom and control God's grace and keep it for themselves to stop people from going in and to make money off of it. And the same is true today. Men who sit at the doors of God's kingdom like those money changers. Not allowing others to go in, but trying their best to sell cheap knockoffs of God's word. These are the men that Paul talks about in Romans when he talks about the smooth talkers in Romans 16, 18. Yet, as we heard earlier this month, they will not prevail. We heard about that stone which the builders rejected upon which God builds his church. And in Daniel we heard about that rock that was cut without hands, which smashes the kingdom of this world and grows and becomes God's church. The violent men, the men of this world, with, by their power and by their strength, attempt to wrest, as Martin Luther wrote, the kingdom and take control of it, they will not succeed. The kingdom cannot be entered by force or by power or by strength. John came preaching repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And this alone, of course, is the way to enter God's kingdom by faith, as we heard in our reading from Romans. By faith. And thus we have the first pillar of the Reformation. We are saved by faith. By faith, a repentant heart and faith in Christ Jesus that looks for his forgiveness and acknowledges my sin alone is the way to heaven. As we're going to see in the next verse, not only is faith the only way to enter the kingdom, but it's the only way even to perceive it. We continue in verses with verses 13 to 15. For all the prophets and all the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has, has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse uh, 14 probably sounds a little odd to us because it, it sounds as though God is, or Jesus is placing a condition on this truth that he tells us that Elijah, or that John is the Elijah that was foretold by Micah. If you're willing to see it, then John is Elijah. But Jesus is, isn't, of course, he's not placing a condition on the truth. Uh, John is the fulfillment of the passage from Micah. John is the Elijah who, is, who was to come. The condition isn't placed on the truth, but on the offering of the truth. Jesus is, is offering this truth to his disciples, to the world, but he says, only if you are willing to receive it. This is a truth which can only be accepted by faith because 
John certainly, from an outward perspective, does not seem to be the fulfillment of Elijah, especially at the moment when Jesus is talking. Our text, the context of our text here is right after uh, John sent those messengers to Jesus. Remember, John is in prison. He's been imprisoned by Herod. And he sends those messages to Jesus. Are you the one, or, or should we look for another? Herod is one of those violent men that Jesus was talking about who attempt to take control of the kingdom for himself and even throws John in prison. And from all outward looking, all outward appearances, it sure seems as though Herod is winning, especially because, as we know, not long after this, Herod will behead John the Baptist. From an outward perspective, it seems as though the violent men have control of God's kingdom. How could God allow, if God is really neutral, how could he allow this, his greatest prophet, not only to be thrown in prison, but to, to be beheaded by John the Baptist? The outward appearance is so striking that even John, one of whom Jesus said there is none born among women who is greater. Jesus, of course, was talking about John's faith. So even John, who had such great faith, doubted. And sends these messengers, are you, are you the one? The outward appearance seems as though God's kingdom is losing, but by faith, by faith we see the truth. By faith we see the truth that even though Herod beheads John, it's not Herod who wins. But John, who goes to his eternal peace in heaven. And that even though Herod is the one who does it, God is the one who allows it for his own reasons. Faith alone can see God's fulfillment and God's kingdom in the death of John the Baptist. Faith alone can see the kingdom. Faith alone can enter the kingdom. Many and powerful are those men that Jesus speaks about. But those of us who walk by faith, we alone can enter God's kingdom. This is why Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty five, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have instead revealed them to babes who walk by faith. We continue verses 16 to 19. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We, we mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he is a demon. But the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus likens them to children because this is a childish attitude that they have here, isn't it? To sit and demand that, well, I'm playing the flute, so you have to dance. I'm sad, so you have to weep with me. To expect and demand that others conform to our expectations or what we want, that's a very childish attitude, and yet this is exactly the attitude that the Pharisees have towards John and and Jesus. We didn't expect Elijah to be dressed in camel's hair and living in the desert, therefore you can't be it. We didn't expect the Messiah 
to preach the gospel. Therefore, you can't be it. John was too austere for them, and Jesus was too lenient. This isn't only a problem with uh, the Pharisees. This is a problem a lot of people have. Expecting God to conform to their expectations. This problem we have not only with God, but often with one another. We've talked about this before. It's the root of many problems in marriages. When two people get married and they have an expectation of how their spouse is going to act. They don't bother to communicate that expectation. They just expect their spouse to read their minds. And guess what? Spouses can't read minds, right? Well, we, we probably are all guilty of this. And rather than, rather than discuss it, rather than communicate, we just get angry that our spouse isn't living up to our preconceived expectations. It, it's bad when we do it to one another, but it's really pernicious and terrible when we do it to God. We expect God to live up to our expectations. The Pharisees had expectations for the coming of the Messiah, but one of the things they were not expecting was for him to come clothed in the grace of God. For him to come preaching forgiveness, yes, even to tax collectors and sinners. And when they saw it, rather than rejoicing, in the glory of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, they rejected him for it. They're like men who come out of the darkness into the light, but because the light is too bright, they scurry back into the darkness. John came in the wilderness, and, and Jesus came, uh, and his first miracle, of course, was tur turning water into wine, but both. John and Jesus came clothed in that grace of God and preaching that repentance. What expectations do we have for God? We often expect God to act in certain ways, to do certain things. When he fails us, we might get upset or even doubt him. But the one thing he, the one, the one thing he never fails is with regard to his grace and his mercy. And thus we have the second pillar of the Reformation, grace alone. Jesus and John looked and acted it both in very different ways, but what was important was not how they were dressed, but that they were clothed in that grace of God. That's the clothing of God's kingdom. His grace which saves sinners. We finished just the last phrase in verse 19 here. But wisdom is justified by her children. That's a confusing phrase. Gibbs argues that a, a much better translation would be wisdom is declared innocent of her works. Or to put it another way, uh, the Pharisees have divorced, separated wisdom from the fruit of wisdom's work. And uh, that's probably the case in which case Jesus is, is being a little sarcastic here with them. Oh, you've done a good job of separating wisdom from the result of wisdom and judging me not on the basis of the wisdom I speak, but on these other things, that, that your preconceived notions, the work of wisdom. It would be as if someone were uh, to judge a mechanic on how well they tell jokes, right? The, whether a mechanic is good or not has nothing to do with how good he is at telling jokes or uh, if you were to judge your pastor by how good he is at weeding his garden, in which case I fail miserably. That's, that's not the, 
That's not how you judge a mechanic. That's not how you, you judge a pastor. These are not, and these are not, this is not the criteria which the Pharisees ought to judge Jesus. Wisdom is often personified in the Old Testament and in the rabbinical writings. And in place in the Old Testament, wisdom is seen as a picture of Christ. And so Christ uses that Old Testament picture here of himself. Uh, you have divorced me from the work that I have sent to do. You ought to judge me not on the basis of what I eat or what, or what I wear or whom I preach to, but rather the wisdom of God ought to be judged on the content of the message preached and how it fits with that Old Testament scripture. And what the prophets prophesied. So we have the third pillar of the Reformation, scripture alone. This is, of course, why the Bereans were so highly praised by the Apostle Paul. Because they alone, in the entire New Testament, they alone judged the message of Jesus on the basis of the Old Testament scripture. When the Apostle Paul came to them and preached to them the risen Christ, we're told that they searched scriptures diligently to find out if it were so, if this is what the scriptures proclaimed. The Pharisees didn't do that. The apostles didn't do it. Not at first, anyway. After Pentecost, when they received the Holy Spirit, uh, then we know that they diligently searched Scripture, but, but not at first. The Bereans alone said, hey, this preaching by Paul needs to be judged on the basis of the Old Testament prophets. Scripture alone. All that we know and teach about God, all we understand about Christ, how we, we judge a pastor, and his teachings is whether it conforms to that word of God, which alone is true and authority. Our text today is largely a negative one, isn't it? Jesus is talking about what the kingdom of God is not. It is not taken by force. You cannot enter with the strength or power of men. It will not conform itself to, to your expectations, and it's not to be judged by its outward appearance. But of course, our epistle reading gives us the, the positive side. Romans 3.21, Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all and all on all who believe. For there is no difference. Our gospel reading shows us that God's kingdom is not entered or seen by force, but Paul reveals that it is grasped by faith. Our gospel reading uh, shows us that uh, Christ and, and John are not to be judged, the kingdom of God is not to be judged on that outward appearance, but Paul reveals that it is grace alone which adores, adorns the kingdom of God. And our gospel reading reminds us <clears throat> um, that we cannot judge Jesus on that outward basis. But Paul says the righteousness of God is, a, is revealed, witnessed by the law and the prophets. Thus, scripture alone. In all times and in all places, there will be many powerful, forceful, violent men, as Jesus calls them, who attempt to take control of God's kingdom or use it for their own profit. Yet God's word stands, and his grace is given to those who 
accepted by faith. May God grant that this pure and true word may be our heritage now and forever. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Seven eighty.